Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection. Welcome to the Treasures of the Texas Collection, brought to you by Baylor University Libraries, KWBU-FM, and William and Kathleen Wardlaw. The diaries, journals, and letters kept by the men and women who lived during the American Civil War are among the most dramatic and uncompromising reads in the Baylor University's Texas Collection. Austin freelance writer Van Darden sifted through the sands of those archives to find some priceless treasures. And he is here with us today to share some of the most fascinating stories taken straight from the pens of those who survived the infamous war between the states. Welcome, Van. Thank you for having me. Tell us about um, the Texas Civil War. Well, there are literally thousands of pieces of paper at the Texas Collection dealing with the Civil War. Some contain gripping accounts of battle-won bravery. Others reflect private longings for a faraway lover. Many are just collections of random thoughts, disjointed dates, or cryptic codes, their meanings lost to a century and a half of dying memories. But regardless, these unedited, first-hand accounts make for some of the most compelling stories in the collection. The American Civil War is known as one of the bloodiest eras in our collective history, and while that certainly is true, within that pain and loss, there must have been some better moments. Oh, absolutely. Uh, for instance, a member of General John Bell Hood's famous Texas Brigade, a Joseph Polly of Company F, 4th Infantry, was stationed at a camp near Fredericksburg, Virginia. He wrote letters to his charming wife, Nellie. He tells one funny story in an April 5, 1862 letter to Nellie. A member of his company, who he named Jack in the letter to hide the man's identity, disdainfully rejected the munificent offer of the Confederate States government to furnish him with a standard if strictly military, $5 overcoat on credit. Instead, Jack spent $25 of his own money on a beautifully tailored coat of a quality and fashion to commend itself to the most fastidious aristocrat. <laughs> the first night in camp, Jack wore his overcoat to sleep. The night was intensely cold, and the men gathered around a huge fire for the night. About midnight, Jack was awakened by the other members of the company to find his coat on fire, lit by a stray coal, <laughs> the pristine garment, he writes, was transformed into a nondescript and open-in-the-back apron, barely held together only by the collar. The next morning, a crestfallen Jack tried to repair the damage by sewing the burned edges together, but that heroic remedy rendered it impossible to button up the front. And he was kept so busy during the day answering questions about what happened to his coat that when night came, he was too hoarse to talk. <laughs> that must have given the troops some much-needed entertainment and was probably a lesson in humility for mm -hmm. Jack. Um, did any more amusing events like that pop up? All the time. Uh, another, another story, Robert Campbell, a member of Company A in the 5th Texas Infantry Regiment, writes in his journal about a funny way soldiers kept camp. His company was making camp near Richmond in the summer of 1862 after the May 7th Battle of Eltham's Landing. It was hot. Camp conditions were miserable. Campbell writes that the soldiers mostly dedicated themselves to skirmishing or hunting what they called war bugs. Today, we call them lice. Yikes! <laughs> oh, I'm not sure I want to hear the details on the lice hunt, but perhaps you could tell us about some of the other forms of entertainment. Sure. 
Campbell also talked at length about what the soldiers did when they weren't fighting during those hot, humid months spent in the swamps outside of Richmond. Within about two weeks after setting up camp, no less than four gambling tents had been established, all devoted to the soldiers' favorite card game, poker. When we won money, he writes, rest assured we spent it well. Campbell said the men founded a black market network for food and other essentials, and poker winnings were often spent on fresh vegetables, butter, milk, chickens, turkeys, and eggs. The going rate at that time for a pound of butter in a Confederate soldier's camp in 1862, $1. Chickens were $1.50 apiece. What about some of the famous generals that led during the Civil War? Well, given the Texas collection's nature, there are not a lot of documents about Union soldiers or generals. Most of the Civil War-related material at the Texas collection deals with the Confederacy and its soldiers and generals, the most famous of whom, of course, is Robert E. Lee. In another letter to Nellie, Joseph Polly tells a story on Lee, who was enormously popular during the Confederate... For, mm. In another letter to Nellie, Joseph Polly tells a story on Lee, who was, of course, enormously popular among Confederate soldiers. They loved him enough to die for him unquestioningly. The story Polly tells takes place during the bloody Battle of the Wilderness in May of 1864. Both sides had taken heavy losses, with Union General Ulysses S. Grant entrenched in a battle against weary Confederate forces. Ultimately, after days of fighting, 12,000 men from Lieutenant General James Longstreet's 1st Corps finished their 25-mile hike to the battlefront. Ecstatic that Confederate reinforcements had arrived, Lee attempted to lead the 800-man Texas Brigade against the Union line. He galloped up on his famous dapple gray horse, Traveler. The Yanks were only 300 yards away. He gives his orders to General Gregg to advance. The Texas Brigade, he yells, always has driven the enemy, and I expect them to do it today. Gregg wheels on his horse and orders the Texas Brigade forward. Just then, Lee, still trying to see through the smoke and trees, rides up on the 5th Texas as if intending to lead the charge himself. Because he was so loved and generals like Lee were too valuable to risk on the front lines, a roar immediately went up from the Texans. They're shocked that their beloved general has put himself in harm's way. One Texan leapt up, grabbed Traveler's reins, and led him to safety, just as a barrage of gunfire splintered the trees and shook the ground beneath them. So during this time, what was happening on the home front back here in Texas? Well, despite the heavy losses suffered by Hood's brigade, and they did lose a lot of men, other Texas infantry brigades also lost men. The state itself was not as affected by the events of the war as its eastern cousins, since the state was farther removed from the major theaters of the war. However, Texas did endure a Union blockade at Galveston Harbor, of course, and a persistent threat of invasion along the coast. But still, life must have changed pretty drastically for the families and communities. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. With fathers and brothers gone at war, the burden of keeping up farms and households were suddenly thrust upon the shoulders of the women left behind. As you'd imagine, some fared better than others with the changes. Indeed. One young woman who managed to weather the storm fairly well was Sally McNeil of Brazoria County. She was a Baylor University alum, and she kept a journal during the years of the war. She chronicled the details of daily experiences. She worried about the threat of measles. She worried about possible sugar and paper shortages. She was well-educated. She liked Dickens uh, and was single by choice, uh, a bold act of self-definition when social mores of the era saw single women as stigmatized spinsters. Although she describes herself as not very remarkable for anything, Sally's diary is remarkable for the fact that it survived the Civil War, Reconstruction, hurricanes, and house fires. It's interesting 
that the private nature of her journal allowed her to write candidly about her life, her health, her friends, neighbors, and her opinions of slavery and the war. Well, please do tell. For instance, in an undated entry in December of 1861, she called the war horrid and struck several exclamation points after the word. She writes that there is a vague report to the effect that we will be abandoned to the depredation of the vandals. Coastal residents must retreat to the interior. Why will we waste this short life on such unholy strife? A year later, Union troops had taken up residence in Galveston following the blockade of the harbor, and McNeil writes that a Yankee troop brigade had destroyed Mr. Winston's salt works. This was typical. McNeil said that the sacrifice during four long years of bloodshed had all been in vain. All is lost, save honor, she writes. We are mourners for the dead and for the living, for the miserable past and hopeless future. Wow. Strong words. But of course, the Civil War was by no means a war where only men became heroes. Mm -hmm. um, there were many strong women who emerged from this era as well. Oh, of course. Uh, not all women relegated themselves to merely keeping house or managing the plantation. A select group of brave and enterprising women, taking inspiration from heroes like Florence Nightingale, Clara Barton, and Dorothea Dix, literally put themselves in the lines of fire to give aid and care to wounded soldiers. Many worked as nurses. Like who? Well, one of the many unsung heroic women was Kate Cumming, a Scottish immigrant. In her journal, she describes the war's effect on her adopted hometown of Mobile, Alabama, and later the experience of going off to war herself. Battles and wounds and defeats and deaths changed the gaiety of men going off to war into dread and fear, she wrote. Everything in their lives was arranged for sudden flight into the woods. The effects of the war were making themselves felt. What happened to Kate? Well, one Sunday morning, she was at church, St. John's Church in Mobile, the Reverend Benjamin Miller called on the ladies of the church to accompany him to the war's front lines to serve as nurses for the sick and wounded men fighting. Cummings' family at first initially disproved of her involvement, which she limited to collecting blankets and quilts and delicacies for the troops. Later, she writes that Reverend Miller returned to Mobile to implore her and about 40 other women to rush to the Battle of Shiloh in southwestern Tennessee to help with the overtaxed field doctors. Did she go? Oh, yeah. And in her diary, she wrote, I had never been inside a hospital and was wholly ignorant of what I should be called upon to do. But I knew that what one woman had done, another could do. Of course, that one woman, Dorothy Dix from Maine, was appointed by Union Brass as superintendent of female nurses of the Army of the United States, June 10, 1861. Dix was responsible for assembling and training a corps of Army nurses. And despite blatant public and medical prejudice aimed at women, there were many eager volunteers, and soon the Union had organized and trained the rudiments of a nursing corps of more than 2,000. The South, unsurprisingly, was slower in recognizing the worth of women as regular members of the Army's medical department. Uh, nearly a full year passed before the Confederate Congress granted them official status. Van, what did Kate write about her time serving in battle? Well, Kate's first experience on the front was at Corinth, about 120 miles east of Memphis. On April 11, 1862, and still as a volunteer, Cumming vividly described the details of the hospital ward. Nothing I had ever heard or read had given me the faintest idea of the horror witnessed there, she writes. She goes on to describe gray-haired men in the pride of manhood and hairless boys mutilated in every imaginable way. Many of them were laying on the floor just as they were taken from the battlefield so close together 
that it was impossible to walk without stepping on them. I will never forget this poor sufferer's gratitude for every little thing done to them, she writes. A little water to drink or bathing of the wounds seemed to afford them the greatest relief. In the days following the April 6th Battle of Shiloh, Cumming makes notes in her journal about her time with a blood-stained medical field tent. I'd like to read some entries from it verbatim because they are particularly compelling. Please do. April 12th. I sat up all night, bathing the men's wounds and giving them water. Everyone attending to them seemed completely worn out. Some of the doctors told me that they had scarcely slept since the battle. April 13th. Finally enjoyed a night's rest upon some boxes. I slept so soundly that I did not dream. April 17th. I was going round as usual this morning washing the faces of the men and had got halfway through one with before I realized that he was dead. He was lying on the gallery by himself and had died with no one near him. These are terrible things and, what's more heartrending, no one seems to mind them. Civil War doctors must have been under considerable amounts of pressure. Oh, indeed. In another collection of letters, this time from Dr. Nathaniel Morgan of the 2nd Battalion, 1st Confederate Regiment, Georgia Volunteers, he describes a field camp in vivid detail. Morgan, who incidentally is the great-grandfather of longtime Waco icon Judge Bill Logue, writes to his wife Frances about the gritty details of the hospital. In this December 7, 1863 letter, he tells of wounded and dying men lying stretched out on bits of straw or blankets calling for water. The operating table was barely a sawhorse with wooden planks covered in blankets. Blood lay everywhere, he writes, seen certainly not for the faint of heart. Mm. Another doctor, senior surgeon John M. Braunau of the 5th Regiment, Texas Mounted Volunteers, was attached first to Green's Brigade in Louisiana and later to Hardeman's Brigade. His daybook of orders, communications, and reports, and the hospital register he kept for his regiment represents one of the more complete depictions of medical realities faced by Civil War soldiers in the collection. And what does he write about? In a July 29, 1864 letter to a Captain W.S. Moore of Hardeman's Brigade, Bronow mentions that fevers had run rampant throughout the camp. Of course, poor diet and consistent exposure to the elements left the soldiers weakened and susceptible to diseases like anemia. Recent rains in the area of their camp dramatically increased the number of mosquitoes, and many men con- contracted malaria, to which Bronau attributed much of their sicknesses. Van, just as the battlefields were chaotic and brutal during the Civil War, the enemy lines were not often easily distinguishable. In a land where friends were enemies and brothers turned against brothers, and spies were probably everywhere. This must have made for some intriguing tales of espionage. Oh, you bet. The collection has a copy of a journal kept by Private Ephraim Shelby Dodd of Company D, 8th Texas Cavalry, better known to us today as Terry's Texas Rangers or just the Texas Rangers. Dodd kept a diary that was little more than a register of names and places, but its value comes in the form of an accurate account of the life and hardships of an enlisted Confederate cavalryman. They were continually on the move, foraging for food, avoiding conflict as well as seeking it. Unfortunately for Dodd, his diary also served as evidence against him in his trial as a spy. Well, do we know what happened to him? We do. He was captured in December of 1863 by Confederate forces after becoming separated from his company and losing his horse during the Middle Tennessee Raid. Unmounted and unwilling to remain in the wagon camp, he followed his company through East Tennessee. After procuring a horse... He was making his way through the lines of the enemy toward the company when he was picked up by another Confederate squad. 
Later in a prison in Sevier County, Tennessee, Confederate authorities confiscated that journal, the one that was detailing the day-to-day locations of the Rangers. Freezing, hungry, exhausted, he was captured in a threadbare Union blue overcoat and pants. But Dodd pled with his captors that he'd warn them out of necessity. The clothes and journal, though, were enough to condemn Dodd to death by hanging. Wow. I am as innocent of the charge of being a spy as an angel of light, he wrote in letters to his father and grandfather. The last entry of his journal that he was allowed to keep in jail, dated one week before his death, described some gifts of charity given to him and other prisoners by Knoxville women. The journal ends with a cryptic reference to his supposed execution site. Friday, January 1st, 1864. Received one pair of drawers from Miss Nanny Scott. Two shirts from Miss House. 150 of the prisoners start today for Strawberry Plains. We go tomorrow. I guess in the heat of battle, and especially back then, civil law and due process weren't always operating at the highest levels. That's right. Soldiers and their commanders dealt with spies and deserters on the battlefield swiftly and decidedly. In almost all cases, the end result was death. Charles A. Lushner, a Prussian immigrant living in Victoria, Texas, tells of another instance where this kind of merciless field justice was practiced. Lushner uh, was enlisted into Company B of the 6th Texas Infantry Regiment at the age of 15. Too young to drive in the state of Texas today, Lushner participated in every major engagement that the regiment fought. His diary was probably written afterwards from notes he kept during the time Uh, as the condition of the journal did not lend itself to having been carried through the hardships of troops encountered in 1864 and 65. I can only imagine. Mm. Do you have a a favorite story from that journal? Yeah, there's a strong one. It was March 22, 1864. A heavy snowfall greeted the men as they were aroused from their sleep before daybreak, and they were ordered to fall in line. They were marched to an open field east of camp where the division was formed into three sides of a square to witness the execution of a deserter. A wagon carrying a Confederate soldier sitting on a coffin entered the square and stopped. The man descended from his perch, and the coffin was placed on the ground. The man's arms were bound, his eyes covered in cloth, and he resumed his place on top of the coffin. An armed group of soldiers stood at 20 paces, and upon command of the officer in charge, the detail fired a volley into the deserter, who lurched forward into the sow. He did not die. So a second volley was fired into the wounded man, finally killing him. Lushner says it was the only execution for desertion in his his division during the entire war. I would imagine even for soldiers accustomed to death and killing that that episode must have been difficult to witness. Oh, you're exactly right. Lushner writes that a gloom swept over the ranks. The long trek back to camp was miserably cold and morale was low. But then suddenly, something whizzed through the air and splashed against the tree trunk in a cloud of white powder. Then another... Then another. Snowballs. An impish member of the Texas Brigade singled out several soldiers in in the Mississippi Brigade and pelted them unmercifully with snowballs packed with rocks and ice. (laughs) The good-natured fights lasted until late afternoon until the men heard, Come up, boys, and draw you whiskey. Their (laughs) Their commander had thoughtfully ordered drinks for the regiment, and the soldiers ended the day around the campfire singing with the grisly ordeal at dawn, barely a distant memory. What an amazing image. Proof that life at war is all about extremes. Finally, were there any letters or diaries that more broadly captured the experience of war? Well, yeah, actually. Few documents in the Texas collection resonate with as much wisdom, humor, warmth, and perspective 
as the memoirs of Sergeant D.H. Hamilton of Company M, 1st Texas Volunteer Infantry. Though written many years later in September of 1925, the stories he tells forms one of the most coherent and narrative-driven accounts of the Civil War in the entire collection. Hamilton begins his memoirs with a bit of background. 1st Company M was organized at Sumter, then the seat of Trinity County, but no sign of that flourishing town remains today. Uh, The company consisted of about 125 men, half of whom were only between 17 and 19 years old. All were drilled on the public square the day before the day they left and attended balls and entertainments given in their benefit every night. How nice. Entire passages of the journal are quotable. The following are direct quotes from the journal, and Hamilton's voice is tempered with age and needs no editing. We marched out of town May 5th, 1862, and on the previous night, a grand ball was given for us at which we danced all night. That night, I promised the girls that I would never dance again until the independence of the Confederate government was declared, and I have kept my word until this day. We marched out of town in a double file to the tune of Dixie, with the kids in the line yelling lustily, believing that they constituted the main part of the Confederate army. At nightfall, we struck camp on the banks of Bull Creek. The kid bunch fiddled and boxed and yelled and whipped at the Yankees all night long, preventing the older men from getting any sleep. After an early breakfast, we took up the march again and traveled all day, striking camp at night. By this time, the kids had cooled down somewhat. Their feet were too sore to dance very much, and everyone rested better than the previous night. The next day, it was found that one of the youngsters, a Harvey Pinston, was missing. Like the rest of us, he had very little knowledge of military requirements and responsibilities and thought that because he volunteered to go, he could volunteer to go back. (laughs) Two men, uh, Jenkins and Tullus, were sent after him. In due time, they overtook Pinston and started back. Somewhere on the trip, they managed to get a bottle of whiskey and all three got drunk. While drunk, Willoughby Tullus shot off a portion of the end of his right trigger finger. It was so badly wrecked, as were they, that they decided it was necessary to operate on it a perfectly natural conclusion for men in their condition to reach. The only surgical instrument they had was a dull knife, and they dressed the wound in salt. Willoughby's finger got well, and he made a gallant soldier. During the war, he had to pull the trigger with his second finger, but he pulled it many thousands of times. I know that it was far too common for the soldiers of the Civil War to suffer not only from rudimentary medical care, Mm -hmm. when there was medical care, but also from frequent lack of supplies and basic clothing. Oh, yeah. Hamilton wrote, My shoes were worn out, and when I say worn out, that is exactly what I mean. The pieces had to be tied together on my feet. It was necessary to do that because no rawhide was to be had to make moccasins, which were made by cutting wet rawhide into semblance of a foot shape and sewing it around the foot with rawhide lacings. He goes on. I had been gone three years and twenty days. My folks had not heard from me during this time and supposed I was dead. My mother did not know me. When I left home, I was a large, fleshy boy, seventeen years old. When I returned, I was a tall, lean man with a heavy black mustache. So long as the people of Texas are true to themselves and to their traditions, they will devotedly cherish the memory of those who lie in unmarked graves of the old brigade, scattered from Manassas to Appomattox. Hamilton closes the portion of his journal with the eloquent sentiment of American poet Theodore O'Hara. The muffled drum's sad roll has beat the soldier's last tattoo. No more on life's parade shall meet that brave and fallen few. On fame's eternal camping ground, their silent tents are spread, and glory guards with solemn round the bivouac of the dead. Beautiful. Thank you, Van, for being with us today. It's my pleasure. 
If you would like to learn more about what life was like during the Civil War, directly from the people who lived through it, the Texas Collection on the Baylor campus has enormous archives of primary source documents, including letters, correspondences, diaries, journals, and memoirs. You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, the Texas Collection at Baylor University. <laughs>